start? Yeah. Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I am Sean KB. And I'm AP Andy. And we are here with no very special guest today. That's right, folks. We're doing an Antifada, just the OG skeleton crew, um, and we're going to answer some of your questions. So really, it's the uh, skeleton crew plus all of you. Uh, you are the skeleton. Welcome to the share zone. <laughs> Get in the sharing circle. It's, uh, tell us your feelings. We're going to pass around the stick. We're going to pass around stick. the talking... Uh, fuck. We're gonna pa pass around the talking me, and <laughs> everybody gets to take a bite. I'm just like looking at what's around me in the room right now. It's and a bone me for <laughs> Halloween. Indeed. <laughs> Passing around a bon me might get a little sloppy in Sam's uh, studio. Just saying. What's I the favorite food of a skeleton crew? Are you really going to pass around the bon me? Bon <laughs> me. <laughs> <Andy's really laughs> Someone's got the munchies. Hey. Way Maybe to, later. Way to call them out. You know what happens in the share zone. <laughs> Shit gets real. Don't make me get in my zone. Are you ready for a dose of reality, guys? Yeah, sure. I we I was I was actually the one I think that was maybe the most resistant to having no guests on, because uh, you know it's you're kind of like flying by the seat of your pants. You know, the three of us. When we have a fourth person here, we can always blame them if something goes shitty. Yeah, we, like bounce ideas off of them. But then I listen to our uh, real moist hours that we recorded and will release soon, and the three of us seem to maybe be able to talk on a podcast. So give, why not yeah. give it a shot? What do you know? We've only done uh, twenty four and one eighth episodes. So this is 25. I feel like we know something we've, about something. We made it to 25. Yeah. Sean, how gritty is your hate today? Oh, well, that's very nice of you to ask. I've never been on the receiving end of that question before. Um, I have to say that um, I'm less hateful than usual, and I think I'd say I'm a little bit more despondent uh, these oh, days. Do tell. The hate always exists. It's always there. Um, it'll always express itself. However... I have been feeling lately that I am very, very, very old. Just a series of events happening. Um, even this gritty thing, you know, how gritty is your hate? You know, it takes me like four or five weeks to catch up on things that 14 and 15 year olds are on immediately. I don't understand half the fucking references of things. Like my back hurts all the time. And, uh, you know, when I walk, I walk around the neighborhood and I see all these young kids, or like college students and shit. And I don't really feel like I, I understand them or like what they're doing or what their lives are about. And then if you add to that the fact that a fucking fascist is about to get in power in Brazil, that we just had another brutal hurricane that just fucked up a whole bunch of uh, working class houses and community and people in the South. And the fact that that fucking report came out that said we've got about 20 to 30 years left of decent weather before climate fucking catastrophe. I'd have to say this is a how gritty is your despondency day for me. Oh, babe. Yeah. Well, say it ain't so. It's so. But you know what? We'll, we'll muscle through it. And uh, I'm Despair sorry. Despair is the easiest thing. I gotta say, I went to a really good punk show last night, and it just made my hate, I don't know if it purified it, like um, Molly Crabapple, I believe, or maybe Jacob, I don't remember, it all blends together in my mind, but like, my hate might be impure, but it's like, definitely spiked back up there. Um, <clears throat> I saw a couple of really good punk bands last night, including this band Vincus from Georgia, 
and I was talking to one of the guys afterwards um, and like I, I mentioned that I have a political podcast or I have a podcast and we sometimes use music and his music's really good and maybe we could use some of his and he's like oh what's it about and like I I always I'm never too sure when I talk to some stranger that I don't know who's maybe making some sort of lumpin punk southern rock music like you don't always know their politics it's best to probably err on the side of caution but i I asked if he was into leftist politics and he goes of course i was like like that fuck yeah he's like we have problems with authority and was like that is also the problems that i have so shout out to vincus and shout out to um retail which was i knew they were going to be punk as fuck because they were selling ass flaps and that was like the primary <laughs> merch that they had. We still and they did not disappoint. We still have promised to our patrons and listeners that our first piece of merch will be Antifada ass flaps. So oh, sh- should we do the plugs? Yeah, I'm going to well, do the plugs. Yeah, plug uh, all right. Plug fans. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, as you probably know by now, our show relies on your support. So if you go to patreon.com slash the Antifada <laughs> and give us some of your money, we can keep on making the good podcast about communism for all of you wonderful people out there. Is that your Sam Cedar voice or is that like your what? grandma? Oh, that's just, that's my that's, normal voice. Oh, what are you talking about? Okay. All right, yeah, you're, I, you're... I guess that's what happens when I get older, babe. Oh, that's If cute. you want to look at like the older women in my family, you'll see what direction I'm going in. Nice. I like that. <laughs> I, that I'm very, very, for probably bizarre. Are, I'm not even going to say edible, but for some reason, I'm very attracted to that sort of accent. So maybe right, well, maybe our good. love will blossom into old age as you become more and more talking like yeah, this. You're just going to come home someday. I'm going to be making brisket and yeah. you're going to be like, I thought you were a vegetarian. <laughs> I'm going to be like, try the brisket. <laughs> what are you talking about? This sounds great. I love brisket. <laughs> oh, let's age yeah. you. Yeah. Let's, you're going to age like a oh fine Manischewitz. I'm getting old too, babe. <laughs> it's really bad and I hate it. Like I was on the group text this week. And once again, on Friday night, all of my friends were like, I'm too tired to hang out. And I'm like, is everyone secretly hanging out without me or are we just getting really fucking? No, that's actually what's happening. It's the latter. Yeah, it's the latter. It's that you met all your friends when you were at party (laughs) age. But as happened to me and maybe will someday happen to Andy, who goes out every single night and just rages uh, at the club until three, four in the morning. Uh, But eventually your friends slow down and then that also brings you to slow down because if you had just had you know i think one person if they had bit on that on friday night oh, yeah. you would have been out at well, alphaville yeah, till five in the morning Rev. my yeah. rep from suicide was playing at market hotel and it looked really fun yeah well but then i went to a punk show last night so like i can still have fun i just might need one of my weekend nights to rest like i was saying with feeling old you need to make yourself young again by befriending 22 year old pratt students oh my god dude can i give a shout out to 21 year old girls like seriously (laughs) i love them so much if any of you guys are listening like it's so fucking easy to impress them and they all think i'm so cool like i barely have to say anything and they're like "Ooh, you're a writer that's so cool that's so interesting and they like give me all of their drugs i never have to pay for anything and they're like oh my god you're 33 you i thought you were so much younger and i'm like stop stop just kidding tell me more and how long does the mark's reading group with them last (laughs) oh that's my that's that's the next step i suppose so it sounds like uh we have to have a, a a new guest on the show, 21-year-old girl. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm open. Like Tycoons, I, uh, young, young girls. No, like I just, I, I am all of their moms. So I will put a call out to my children and see if any of them want to oh, come that's on. That's sweet. You should do. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. There was another thing that we wanted to talk about. I mentioned the hurricane, right? Uh, there was another fundraiser. Yeah. yeah so um, I just want to give a plug for a hurricane relief fundraiser that the Tallahassee DSA is doing. Um, I guess we'll put a link in the show description but they are already halfway to their $10,000 goal. And um, as you know, the government's response is not always so great when a hurricane hits. Um, and these folks are doing really good mutual aid work to um, help people recover in the aftermath of Hurricane Michael. So, These um, hurricanes, these weather events, uh, as again in, seen in that report, are going to become more and more common and extreme and we do need to start building these networks right now in order to not only provide material support but also build our own skills and our own networks at uh, coming together and uh, helping one another in solidarity so shout out to tallahassee dsa hurricane relief so i just wanted to give a little bit of a shout out to a new comrade on the scene um some of you have probably seen his picture around uh the internet Maybe with a nice little image macro that says, on my way to fire your boss. Um, I don't know. Uh, I'm, of course, talking about the new Philadelphia Flyers mascot, Gritty. Um, I'm told that this is a hockey team. I'm not an expert on sports, but I'm told that that's what it is. And he's, like, really been inspiring to a lot of the folks out there. Yeah, I, um, I've i seen Gritty everywhere recently, and um, I think he's really become for the left what we needed for so long, which is... Uh, a Pepe. A Pepe. He's left our Pepe. Pepe. Left Pepe. Yeah, I really Sundays. hate Philadelphia sports. Yeah. I, that... I think their fans are revolting. They're almost as bad as Boston fans. <sighs> mm. Well, that's... maybe worse than no. They're they're as they're equally bad as Yankees and Boston fans. Mm. Wow, for on the Yankees on the Yankees thing, fuck you. On the Boston thing, yeah, you're probably right. The uh, Philadelphia, I believe, at the whatever I don't know what it's branded now, but don't they have a police station in their uh, football stadium because so many people get arrested, they just process them inside. I was at a Phillies game a few years ago, and I, we got bleacher seats. It was Phillies Mets in Philadelphia. And there was like, you know, 10 Mets fans there and, you know, fans, Phillies fans were just like constantly harassing us, which is not something that goes on at Mets games. Um, And like harassing us to the point where there was going to be a fight, Mm. like as they got drunker Mm. and how security dealt with that was kicking out the Mets fans one by one (laughs) just for being Mets fans, like with with no pretext. Yeah, sounds about right. Wow. Well... The Philly fans, Philly fandom is is similar to just like the whole city and culture of Philadelphia, which I have to say I love. I think Philly's a great fucking town, but it is indeed, what's the G word I'm thinking of? Gritty. Uh, It is indeed a uh, working class city. It's rough around the edges. Um, It's also a lot of fun and uh, it's also really cheap, which is a cool thing too. But, uh, you know, their their sports teams are, I think, a real representation of like, you know, uh, strong working class culture of drinking and being an asshole well according to the class struggle board and say game, water say water too they do say that according to the class struggle board game that we all played a few months ago with aaron um sports are counter-revolutionary 
because they unite people across class lines and lie to them that they have a shared common interest. They also divide the working class, right, along the lines of geography, when we all know that we need an internationalist working class movement if we're ever going to get socialism in our time. Uh, I mean, imagine the difficulty of uniting Philadelphia new york and boston together and then put that on a global scale right i think sports is in that sense this way in which we are divided because it's not only that it's also that a working class person no matter what your color is no matter where you you know came from originally if you're in philadelphia new york boston seattle la Kansas City, wherever it is, you have a lot more in common with one another, right? Than the guy sitting down there in the fucking, you know, first baseline who got his tickets through Goldman Sachs fucking shit. And it's a way, and I remember I was a young kid and I was a fucking insufferable prick when I first read Chomsky, like 14 and 15 years old. We're on the way to like my brother's soccer game or some shit like that. And I came out with like in the back seat, like, you know, sports is a way of like, you know, the capitalists and like, you know, the media to use, you know, distraction and try to get us to separate each other, you know, when we should really be uniting, you know, in our own interests across geographical lines. It was insufferable to say back then, but it is true. It is definitely true. Well, that's what's great about Gritty is he is um, a, a mirror. He's a reflection of, uh, of, of every sports fan. He's not like a dinosaur or a, or a lion or something or a baseball-headed man. What he, is he? He is a bloated, uh, unkempt, <laughs> beer-drinking sports fan um, who is jaundiced from <laughs> lack of self-care. And he can barely pull himself together to get on the ice and dance around for a minute. And he lashes out uh, every time he has to fulfill his responsibilities as a mascot. Um, and he is he is mocking. He's the first mascot who is mocking the fans of the team. He's like, look yeah. at look at yourself. Yeah. Look at what you've become. Here's a mirror. Pull yourself together. <laughs> and I think perhaps this is going to be a wake up call for people to get over their their localism, their mm. their like sports team nationalism, mm. and uh, join together and and fight the real enemy, uh, the Yankees. <laughs> well, Ooh. I I, I, I could get fired. behind him if only on the grounds that he uh, triggers the right, because um, as we saw in a Wall Street Journal op-ed, the Wall Street Journal saw fit they uh, to they were very angry. They were very gritty. They, they were very angry at the left for quote unquote appropriating gritty, as if you can appropriate something that's already yours. <sighs> As if it and as if Wait, it was, they're pissed off about appro- yeah, appropriation yeah. now. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, and as if endorsing Bolsonaro wasn't enough, right? Oh, those like that's one thing, but fucking trying to take gritty away from us is a bridge too far. Let me just read you a few choice passages from this op-ed. It's it's Please behind do. a paywall, but um, Splinter has some. Quotes. I, I, I want to get from my despondency to my hatred. So please give me a piece of uh, the Wall Street Journal take on our hero Gritty. So they start out about like basically just describing what Gritty is and how he reflects Philadelphia because it's like Gritty City, it's lawless, Gritty is good, blah, blah, blah. So it's like a sort of base, vulgar, vague kind of populism that could be left or right, although you kind of get the idea that they want it to be right. It's for people who, when watching the Rocky movies and he was walking through like a bombed out shantytown Philadelphia, thought, oh, that's nice. (laughs) That's the Philly I like. Right. (laughs) So then here's the the twist, okay? Well, it's not a twist, but here's like the 
the opinion. Here's the yeah. op in the end. Give us the op. <clears throat> but this is 2018, and Gritty has inevitably become politicized. Hell yeah. Two days after the mascot's debut, the socialist magazine Jacobin tweeted that, quote, Gritty is a worker, which, like, you know, I think it's very telling that they think it's political just that someone's a worker. Right? <laughs> I mean, it was Jacobin, so they did pick up on the implicit thing. But yeah, no, it, it is true. He's nothing if not a fucking worker. And then it, you think he's fucking going out there on his own free time to fall fall down on the ice and shoot his coworkers <laughs> with uh, with t shirt cannons? I mean, come on, the guy's fucking. He's working for a wage. He's a pro. Maybe lumping, but maybe lumping. Lumpy, lumpin'. Health at every size. So it goes on. (laughs) The same leftists who want statues of Thomas Jefferson removed are now petitioning for Gritty to replace Mayor Frank Rizzo on a downtown mural. Yes, yes. What could possibly be bad about that? And yes, and yes. Do people know, do you guys know who Frank Rizzo is? Real fucking scumbag. Uh, Andy? R- racist police chief. Yes. he went Even from, more racist than normal. Yes. He went from being a racist police chief to becoming a racist mayor. And uh, he was kind of like this law and order guy in Philadelphia. And, uh, of course, the right wing loved him because eh, a lot more black people started to get shot and beat up by the police around then. But, uh, yeah, they, there's a big statue of him. And people have talked about taking it down because Rizzo is such a fucking detestable character. And if we're going to replace this fucking cop with anybody... It may as well be the anti-cop. Well, this is what the right wing does, right? They take something that's, uh, you know, inclusive, like gritty, and they act like that's like a leftist affront to the like the normal thing, which is like this horrible racist mayor. Like that's <laughs> normal, and we want to like, replace him with something. It, it, it's just like getting it very twisted at Count, like, who the aggressor is here. Ca- counterpoint, Frank Rizzo was democratically elected by the racist white people in Philadelphia. Who the fuck elected Gritty? Now that I think about it, Flyers is an incredibly leftist team name. Mm. Is it? What it's, do we do but hand out flyers? Yeah. Is that mm. where you're going with that? <laughs> it's what we love to hand out. <laughs> Indeed. I also like it that he's like... You know, Gritty, he's not black. He's not white. He's a fucking orange Muppet from outer space. He's everyone and no one at the same time. Okay. Um, And when President Trump visited Philadelphia last Tuesday, I feel like anyone who refers to him as President Trump at this point (laughs) is like a MAGA chud. (laughs) And when President Trump... He's not your president? Is that what you're saying? Mm. And when President (laughs) Trump visited Philadelphia last Tuesday, Antifa and other far left groups Mm. showed up to protest. Many carried gritty posters and chanted, mm-hmm. Gritty hates Trump. Gritty hates Trump. Hell yeah. Radical Philly writer George Ticarello Mar, friend of the show. I like how they call him a writer. He's a professor, but anyways. <laughs> He's yeah. a writer too. Yeah. He writes tweets. He writes tweets. Yeah. And other things. Um, George Ticarello Mar tweeted a picture of Gritty along with the slogan, When our turn comes, we shall not make excuses for the terror. <laughs> he explained the tweet to me, quote, it's a tongue-in-cheek quote from Marx, one of the many semi-humorous appropriations of Gritty. I love the idea of this like Wall Street Journal op-ed writer calling George Chicarello yeah. for comment. Well, they know where to get the spice he takes from. Oh, indeed. <laughs> and then she goes, appropriation indeed. Gritty belongs to Philadelphia, <laughs> not to far-left activists, which implies that far-left activists are not a part of Philadelphia. Yeah, I was going to say, like, can't you be both? I mean, that's fucked up. Yeah, no, when you say, it's like, it's like using, I don't know, working class as a dog whistle for white working class, yeah, right? Yeah. Philadelphia is not far-left activists. Still, in an era when everything from Nike and the NFL to your local restaurant is a political battlefield, this development is as predictable as it is sad. 
Not only can't we have nice things, we can't even have silly, creepy things, which is like a little bit of shade on Gritty. Yeah. He's like the most welcoming, uncreepy person slash Muppet I think I've ever encountered. I think it's really great, you know, that folks, anarchists and Marxists, communists, socialists, whatever, you know, found something charming about this guy and he made him our guy and he might have been our guy to begin with. We don't know what's under that beautiful suit, what's under that mask. You know, but I think it is right for us to claim him as our own and uh, not sure if he's, you know, more Marxist or anarchist, but yeah, he say, could be Marx or Bakunin. Right? Yeah, he kind of looks like a Bakunin type character. He's all fat and fucking bearded and uh, he probably smells horrible. And Antifa. Yeah, probably smells like fucking stale beer and hot dogs. But, you know, there actually, I think it was on Fallon. There was a good bit where he, he does. He takes off his. uh mask and there's just like another face like that under it fuck yeah we are legion that's lit that's fucking lit (laughs) that's what happens when you unmask a member of antifa as well it's just another (laughs) it's another bandana Mm -hmm. it's just a mirror and you're like oh my god (laughs) fuck around find out oh yeah some black mirror shit (laughs) i i really like that image of him with the t-shirt cannon it's like fuck around find out (laughs) so good yeah so fuck you pepe the frog uh there's a new he's coming for you yeah he's coming protect your neck yeah you're fucked so um yeah i think we wanted to take some questions from our wonderful audience and i gotta say i didn't even know if this segment was gonna work out because i tweeted this yesterday evening (laughs) that we were looking to answer some questions and we got some very quality questions to the point where i don't even think we're going to be able to answer them all so apologies in advance if we don't get to yours yeah you're seeing how the podcast magic works and how professional the antifada is we need questions we just you know 20 hours out we just go ahead and uh, call them in but uh thanks so much for uh for everybody who sent your questions in and we're going to try to get to as many of them as we humanly and possibly can so this question comes from brian a and it says sorry i'm a little bit sick <clears throat> In the past, American leftists had a much broader presence in everyday culture, movies, novels, music, visual arts, etc. Do you think we need a revival of the socialist cultural tradition to combat the right's assault on our values, class war and culture war? It, I wish that the U.S. had some of the like visible radical culture that you have in other countries where there's like political murals and graffiti and, um, you know, more flyering and posters everywhere that that leftist culture doesn't come from from the cultural representations it's a reflection of it so you have to build the movement first before that culture comes in if you just if you just like wheat paste and and do graffiti or hand out newspapers or or whatever it's that it's not doesn't hurt but it's that's not um gonna change anything i don't think i think that's exactly right i think that the one follows from the other so if you look at the two great periods in the 20th century where uh, as Brian calls it, socialist cultural tradition, I suppose, um, were dominant. It was the 1930s, the Popular Front era uh, in the United States uh, and in Europe. And then also, um, obviously, in the 60s and 70s, in that great series of struggles, there were some really great political, um, really good p- political art created, uh, including like very mainstream stuff like Sartre. I'm not Sartre, what the f- I'm such an asshole. Some really mainstream stuff like uh, Godard did uh, La Chinoise, you know, about uh, Maoist youth, you know, oh, yeah. uh, amidst uh, the May 68 yep. uprisings and stuff. And you know what? Honestly, as socialism becomes more of a mainstream ideology among millennials and as millennials begin to make more of the culture, I think we're going to see more and more of it. I mean, Sorry to Bother You was yeah. a big hit. Yeah. And that was made by a literal communist. Yes. So I think... 
as these things progress, we're probably going to see more. And I would say one more thing, too. I'd say that in the past, you know, obviously a huge barrier was the monetary one. You know, you had these giant studios largely, unless it was like a small, you know, indie production or it was an artist working home with a canvas. You know, there was a real sort of financial and institutional hurdle to jump over in order to make, you know, radical and critical art. But I think now, as we've seen with Gritty, right, uh, if you want there to be a kind of revival of leftist uh, culture, that could be as easy as taking a Marx quote and putting it over the sports mascot of a Philadelphia hockey team. So sorry to bother you, it's an interesting case, because it's a very kind of pro-struggle uh, like overtly anarchistic communist movie. But the way it was interpreted by many, if not most viewers, was that it was about race. Um, that it was, was about... It? Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of what the reviews really, talk about and how it's, it's about how enough this, of the reviews. this guy has to, you know, use a white voice to succeed. And obviously race is a, is a, is a part of it. But the, the fact that this is like a, a movie about a workplace struggle was, was really lost. Hmm. And I think that happens a lot when there's movies that are like truly radical or that, that show like a, a villain and the villain is supposed to reflect like the mainstream ideology in some way. Like Fight Club, for instance, is like in, in mm. some ways like a, a satire of, of masculinity. Yeah, for sure. Um, and these are always reversed to where people begin to identify with the villains and the things that are being critiqued and insulted. And you can you can just see the way that even if the messages of these movies are somewhat subversive, people will take them in non-subversive ways. A Watchmen is also another great example where people identify with Rorschach. I don't know how you could have gotten a race reductionist message from Sorry to Bother You. Like, it's really out there well, in I, your I, face. I haven't even seen the movie, but I can... I can God, you pu- gotta see it, babe. I know. Jesus. But I can, I can kind of understand the tendency that Andy's talking about, which it's is... called called uh, liberalism. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. It's called liberalism. I mean, it's, it's like, all right, so there's this cultural artifact that's created by this guy, you know, Boots Riley, and there's a struggle happening. Um, how does, like, a mainstream publication, a liberal publication, um, interpret that whole entire thing? it's reflexive, right? So like Andy was saying, and I I was saying, and Jamie was saying, you know, you you have to have a movement, right, in order to kind of create this art uh, to begin with, because it has to be based on real struggles that are happening in real life. Um, And then that needs to be created. But then also, too, we need to have like that that last uh, factor of it, right? Which is to say like, okay, this is a movie about a workplace struggle. Like, it's interpreted this way. So now folks, like, you know, we're going to write our reviews and so people know how to take this and, like, you know, use it in everyday life, right? There needs to be enough, like, bodies on the ground and enough organizational structure within the left to, like, continue those left critiques that were raised by that movie. That's true. Um, Also, I think as we build more of a working class movement and more of a consciousness like that and that gives rise to culture, I I think... Uh, people will have better tools to then understand that culture, right? Like it's, it's, it's a feedback yeah, sure. loop. Totally. hundred percent. And you know, as a, um, cultural, a postmodern cultural Marxist myself, you know, as uh, Gramsci said, and as Jordan Peterson said, uh, we are in a long march through the institutions and, uh, we will get there, Brian, we will get there. So our next question here, uh, let's go to the one on Jamie's favorite topic mandatory voting oh my god this one is from a listener and uh commenter named sean l it's not me different sean although he does spell it the correct way he says jamie made some comments slash tweets friday about mandatory voting i'm interested to know everyone's thoughts on electoral forms more broadly 
reforms more broadly. Do they merit pushing for? What are some short-term reforms you support? What would your pie-in-the-sky voting system look like? And then he gives you know a bunch of examples, but I think basically you get the gist of the uh, question. And Jamie, I think this just this came up on MR, right? And mm-hmm. you, you wanted a chance to kind of flesh out a little bit more of what your points were on it. Yeah. So <clears throat> the idea of mandatory voting under our current system where nothing else changes is kind of laughable to me. Um, and the way that it would be affected is basically through economic coercion, right? So if you vote, you get some kind of tax credit. If you don't vote, you get some kind of tax penalty. Right? Earned voting tax credit. Yeah, and that's like the most neoliberal tail wagging dog solution to the problem of low turnout that I could possibly fucking think of, right? Because the reasons why people don't vote are largely economic, right? Um, The majority of poor people don't vote. Um, Income is the single biggest determining factor in whether or not someone's going to vote. So it just seems a little bit cruel to punish the poor that way or, you know, get a make a bunch of people vote who aren't very informed, which... I don't think it's going to necessarily give the outcome that the liberals pushing for this want, which right. is electing more Democrats. So I think if you really want to treat, if you're serious about increasing turnout and you want to do it in like a way that makes sense and is more humane and uh, class conscious and organic, although I know liberals don't always care about that, um, you need a welfare state, right? Like, why don't people vote? They don't vote because they're at work. They, they're at work. <laughs> they literally can't get the time off to yeah, vote. Child care. So like, it, I guess part of it is you could make it a mandatory national holiday, but there are still some people who would not get time off either because they're doing unwaged care work mm-hmm. or because as we all know, plenty of people still have to work on holidays. Sure. So like, the majority of people just don't care to vote. I think yeah. that's what I it mean, is. Yeah. Or people, they don't feel like there's anything and like worth someone, voting for. Someone got mad at me for suggesting this on Twitter, but it's true. Like, Plenty of poor people, plenty of working class people in this country have suffered equally under Democrats and Republicans. And you can try to argue with them about that. But like suffering is subjective um, and they just don't know what it's going to do for them. So, you know, if the Democrats think that poor people, more poor people should vote for them, they should give them something to vote for. And this needs to not just be campaign promises because they promise the same shit every time. And as we know, they never fucking deliver, right? Obama had control of the government and he couldn't even pass card check. So if they're fucking serious about that, it's incumbent upon the politicians running to give people something to actually vote for. Hold on a second, Word. though. President Obama came out a couple months ago in support of Medicare for All. And Eric Holder uh, is Oh, yeah, a very a, new idea. Yeah, well, you know, he's got a lot of power as the president still. And uh, Eric Holder now is apparently trying to hold bankers accountable on some uh, Netflix show mm. that he's uh, starring in. Antifa so, Eric. Yeah, Antifa Eric. I, I would say on this that this isn't really in my wheelhouse. It's like not really something that I, I get particularly worked up a, about. I think that uh, people being disenfranchised is a horrible thing. It's obviously an economic thing, and it's often, often very racial as well. Um, I think that the more interesting question is to look at the ways in which the entire uh, system that we have, it's not a democracy, it's a republic, as the conservatives always tell us, uh, how it incentivizes people to not engage, and how um, almost all of the fixes that you could imagine making in your pie-in-the-sky voting system would still leave a giant gap between the representation of your interests and what your actual interests are as a working person in this country. I mean, I also think if you want to talk about a pie-in-the-sky thing, 
Recallable my... delegates, uh, Soviets of uh, oh. workers and soldiers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you want to talk about my pie in the sky system, because someone was like, right, if you have citizenship in a republic, it's not asking too much to make you participate. Abolish citizenship. And like, that's what I said. I, I agree with that if we had a different kind of society, right? Because the republic we have now, the Abolish system we have society. now is illegitimate. Yeah. But like... In my ideal socialist society, like, yes, everyone would need to participate somewhat if we were going to have, like, the kind of horizontalist government that I'm envisioning. Yeah, I mean, the stakes would be completely different. And yeah. uh, people would presumably be way less alienated from uh, their own powers and, um, you know, be a whole different world. But in the meantime, yeah, I, I don't disagree with you at all about the mandatory voting thing it seems like a shitty clintonian fucking bullshit vision of uh trying to bring people out when they don't really have much to come out for yeah under our current system i just don't know that it would do very much i agree with what jamie's saying and i also want to quote a wacky morning dj and say that democracy is a joke (laughs) oh good one and i'm also starving for pie all of a sudden (laughs) Uh, well gotta gotta get through these questions and then maybe we can all have ourselves a treat go out there and just jump and try to grab the pies (laughs) as they're flying around (laughs) you never see uh in brooklyn uh pies cooling on a windowsill i know right yeah fly away they know Everyone's got bars on their windows to protect the pies from <laughs> highwaymen and robbers. Yeah, in the 30s. That's why they put the bars in. There were so many hobos mm-hmm. you know, stealing them. Uh, so Thanks, let's Wobblies. <laughs> uh, let's do, do this next? one. Uh, okay. So our next question comes from a chess grandmaster from St. Louis. Uh, his name is Aaron. He's incredibly good at chess. Nonetheless, I beat him five times in a row on Wednesday night Damn. on chess.com. Thanks for the rating boost, Aaron. Uh, and he asks, um, why does Sean say dead ass so much? What does dead ass mean? Well, it's funny because uh, I directly cut and paste this into the sound sheet. And he did dead ass as two separate words. It's actually one word. It's not even hyphenated. It's just dead ass. Um Two reasons. The first is that Jamie has already taken hell yeah as her catchphrase and I needed my own because, uh, you know what? Everyone's got to do a little self-branding. So for every hell yeah she gives, I'll give a dead ass. But uh, the other answer to the question is that, uh, I don't know, it's kind of like a New Yorkese sort of thing that the kids say. I think I picked it up from Johnny because Johnny, uh, you know, is a teacher and he hangs out with a lot of young kids. Uh in the city, and uh, it just basically means like, yeah, seriously, or like 100%, and uh, it's just a New York thing. I it's don't know. dead on, but instead of saying on, you say ass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's uh, just a little bit more crass than saying dead on. Aaron yes. from St. Louis, um, <laughs> if you want to start using dead ass in St. Louis, Missouri, please feel free to do so. But also know that you are also obligated to use the New York word herb to describe people who are doofy that you don't like. It's you can't have dead ass without the herb. Dead yeah. ass. So our next question comes from James D. I believe he is the cousin of our good friend Discord man and mod Brian. He says, "I'd love to hear your take on the media obsession with parenthesis and possible value in pointing out hypocrisy. You see it all the time, both with right wing ghouls and centrist libs." How consistency, even in the service of nothing and in defense of power, has often become the highest moral achievement. Who wants to take this one on? Jamie? Hmm. 
I mean, I think there's some value in pointing out hypocrisy of both right-wing ghouls and centrist libs. Mm. Um, yeah, like, just consistency alone is not a virtue of any kind. Yeah, Franco, Francisco Franco is remarkably consistent in his uh, clerical fascism, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give him much profit yeah, on that. Yeah, but, like, <clears throat> I think maybe from doing Majority Report, I've kind of realized... In, and been sort of impressed at the fact that um, some people actually do get moved, do move their politics as a result of listening to the things that people say on a podcast or a YouTube show. So in that way, like if we point out the hypocrisy of like, I don't know, uh, Hillary Clinton Democrats on our show and it makes people move to the left because of it, like that's fine. But like you got to do it for the right ends otherwise it's stupid well it's interesting because uh you know james talks about this media obsession in pointing it out i think there is and other folks have pointed to the john stewart phenomenon you know under george w bush how it was enough to just simply be like oh they're lying hypocrites haha we take the moral high ground we win well you know Andy, I think you were saying before the thing about hypocrisy, right? Like it only works in certain circumstances, pointing it out. I was quoting uh, the philosopher Jake Flores, <laughs> who said, they think you can beat somebody by proving they're a hypocrite. But if you prove that they're a hypocrite and they, do, they go, I don't care, you're fucked. <laughs> That's oh, yeah. exactly right. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think it's really that useful when you're arguing with somebody who is a hypocrite. I think it's more useful when you are trying to reveal something about the other side to the people who might already be sympathetic to your message, right? I mean, like, the, the most glaring example of this are all of the Republicans and conservatives and moral majority, you know, evangelical politicians and preachers out there who talk a big game about family values and shit, and then it turns out they're fucking a 14-year-old girl or a 14-year-old boy, or they paid for multiple abortions. Or they vote for Donald Trump. Yeah, they vote for Donald Trump. But that's the point, is that they what they want is their policy policies passed. Yes, they, exactly. They want power. They yes. don't they like hypocrisy is not something that's going to work on them. Well, it's maybe not. it works better on liberals because liberals are the ones who care about that stuff so yeah. much. That's yeah. true, like, yeah. Like I wrote Let an see op-ed. Where, look where it's got them. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote an op-ed recently about how uh, Hillary Clinton endorsed Andrew Cuomo instead of Cynthia Nixon, and I used that to point out a hypocrisy that I knew had been there all along, which is that you know, she ran as this like woke woman feminist candidate and basically portrayed herself as an anti-establishment candidate and some somehow progressive just because she was a woman when we all know that that's bullshit. So to turn around and endorse the right wing man over the somewhat progressive woman was like a very glaring example of her hypocrisy. So in conclusion, maybe it only works on liberals. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being defensive because that's the thing I like to do. So I, I think this question and also the one about voting sort of highlight this this problem in our engagement with politics, like uh, representative politics, which is this implication that there's some like pure form of it that we can revert back to or reform ourselves back to. And, and often the critique of that is just like, don't vote or ignore it or whatever. I'm not saying that, but you should participate in understanding that there's no integrity. That, like you should be completely cynical participating in politics, just like all the politicians are. It's a game. They're jockeying for position. Uh, they're all liars. We all know that they're liars. Like, let's stop pretending right. that they're not liars because they know like Trump is such a great politician because he has been lying his entire life about everything. He had to do that to get ahead. 
as a businessman, he became a re- reality TV star, which is, you know, the very concept of reality TV is this deep lie that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. And so when he he's a perfect politician because everybody already knows that he's this fake character who's lying all the time and it's purely ironic and you can take everything he says both ways. They do, no one cares that he's full of shit and lying all the time. Yeah, of course. And they've been remarkably effective uh, in that because unlike the uh, Democrats, uh, they don't give a flying fuck. They have the power, they take the power, and they use the power. You know, if Chuck Schumer's going to go up there and talk about, oh, you know, they're ruining norms of, you know, the filibuster on the fucking Supreme Court, they don't give a flying fuck. Nobody gives a flying fuck. It's power, it's politics. I'm increasingly convinced that Schumer is like the most... Uh, dangerous man in politics for <laughs> for how possible. poorly he's been handling. Yeah, this. no, Our, the senator from uh, uh. Goldman Sachs. Uh, anyways, uh, I'm, I'm tired of hearing liberals go back and forth and act confused about why Chuck Schumer and the Democrats aren't doing more progressive things. Uh, yeah. Like, they're they're not on our side. That's not even on, like, the top five list of things that they're about, right? Like, people want to act like if it weren't for the Republican Party, the Democrats would have, like, passed socialism by now. <laughs> and that's just not true. No, it's, I mean, maybe in 19... 19- 65 there might have been a possibility of passing some sort of tepid social democracy but the democrats are way past that so our next question might be my favorite and uh we're not doing the best last in my opinion but uh we're gonna do it right now it's from joe m and joe m has a very short and sweet question it is how often do you question what you believe who'd like to pick that one up you seem like you want to answer it, babe. I don't know. Andy has a look of uh, glazed interest in his eyes right now. Yeah, I'm going to do it. Wait, no, I, I probably shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Too personal. <laughs> this, that's exactly when you should do it. Well, okay. I guess I will start then. Yeah, since Everyone do. else seems to want me to go first. Yeah, you do. Um, I guess... How that's such that is a good question. It's a great question. Like on a very basic level, I do not really question the things I believe in, right? Like I know with extreme certainty that capitalism needs to end and probably will end and that we need to transition from that to socialism if we want a society built around human needs where everyone can have a humane life. And control their own destiny. Um, the the tactics in terms of how we get there, I'm constantly questioning. Um, and like honestly, if you have anyone who says that they have the answer and you just need to do everything they say and you'll get socialism, like you should not trust that person. Like I guess it's anchored to another question that's coming later about what our political tendency is. But like I'm always willing to take new information into account. I'm always willing to debate stuff with people. And I I constantly worry that whatever tactic I have chosen to vote on, right? Because you do come to certain crossroads sometimes when you're a leftist organizer where you can't do all of the things at once. Like you have to choose one thing or the other. Like, I don't know, just to use one dumb example, like the Cynthia Nixon debate, right? Like you had to say yes or no. And I think that's part of why it created so much strife in DSA because the answer is usually like everyone does everything all the time in case one of them might work. Um, It was a yes or no question that everyone had to vote on. And it was very difficult. And even during those arguments, I was pretty sure that I was right and that it was a bad idea for DSA. But like, 
I was still open to the fact that I might be wrong and I was afraid that I might be wrong or that maybe my side would win and it would have some negative consequences that I hadn't anticipated. So like to answer your question, yeah, the basics, like the broad picture of what I believe, I don't question that, but the tactics of how we get there, which is like pretty important in the day to day, I would say is something I question constantly. I couldn't have said it any better myself. That was actually almost the exact same tact that I was going to take. Glad I found you, babe. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I feel exactly the same way. I think that if you don't question every once in a while or um, even just on purpose the things that you take for granted, um, you're not doing yourself any favors and you're also not doing the movement any favors either because, as Jamie said, um, you know, new facts come to light. You uh, are faced with new situations. Uh, you read different analyses and you have to kind of weigh whether this particular uh, take on why this is happening and what should come from that is a good one compared to this, that, and the other thing. I agree that um, it's a lot harder, but I think ultimately it's a lot better to um, go through life um, skeptical of uh, the, how should we say, the details, but in terms of believing you know, that there is a better way that uh, humanity could organize itself and believing that we, uh, you, everybody is an important part in that struggle and that the liberation of humanity from its uh, alienation and exploitation um, is not a historical certainty, but it is a real material possibility. I have not wavered from that um, since I was a teenager and I never will, but I I hope. But, um, you know, like Jamie said too, you know, you always have to be, I think, very, very, very um, wary of falling into a particular groove that you can't get out of. And you always need to be very, very wary too, not that they're always wrong, of uh, people with that certainty, uh, people in an organization that are giving you the answers, the answers uh, that, uh, you know, are not open to questions. So I think you should be constantly questioning what you believe. Uh, but I think that ultimately at the end of the day, um, you always have to have a core uh, inside of you that uh, is unquestionable, which is that we can do better. I can be a part of this, and I need to come together with other people to help um, this human species make it past the next 40, 50 years, because at this mm-hmm. point, it's not looking good, folks. So, yeah. uh, you know, don't question that. We have the ability to do this as hard as it is, but definitely question the tactics and the day in and day out sort of stuff, because otherwise you just turn into kind of like a, I don't know, flyer handing out a zombie person. Yeah. And on the big picture tip, like what's the alternative to believing the big picture ideas that we believe, like that we live in the best of all possible worlds? Right. Like that's depressing as shit steven like i don't want to believe that has steven pinker uh questioned what he believed recently i mean in light of all i strongly doubt it even elon musk does a better idea of that than fucking steven pinker Mm -hmm. does yeah good question do you have anything to add on that andy or well marx was uh in favor of the ruthless critique of everything existing that's right and it was very important to the enlightenment thinkers to really go as far down as possible and like until the point where you don't know anything that's you know that's Descartes right um and I think we should sometime someday maybe just say what do I mean by communism or anarchism or revolution and reevaluate every now and again mm. what's what's your vision of that do you really believe in it because I think there's a lot of people who claim to be revolutionaries that don't want it and don't believe in mm. it and if that's the case just come to terms with that and 
Like I, I consider myself the Democratic Party, (laughs) or just a regular job. (laughs) I consider myself a pro-revolutionary. I don't know if revolution is possible. I want it to happen. I don't think I have any ability to make it happen on my own. But just that shift from like revel, I'm a revolutionary in absence of revolution, in Mm. absence of a party, to pro-revolutionary really helps you consider what you should do and how to think. That's a great fucking point, yeah. I think That's that, a great fucking point. <laughs> no, I, I think that, that that particular phrase, pro-revolutionary, is, uh, is, is where I stand, too. It's... Um, yeah, because like, what does it mean to be a revolutionary? Right, like, it's are not you going to take up times. arms and start fighting yeah, it, the it, government? It, it, it turns into like adventurism, and it turns yeah. into posturing, and it turns into very alienating sort of yeah. behavior towards a lot of people when yeah, you're coming down like with the gospel. You know, the bad one true word. tactics as well. Oh, sure. Like I, th- I think it's really, really as if this even needs to be said. It's highly irresponsible to tell people that it's time to take up arms and have a revolution if. We have zero chance of winning, and I think that's where we're at right now. If it happened now, we would lose really fucking badly, and we would all be killed. But why, do we even, why are we even talking about arms when we, like, as soon as the word revolution is mentioned, we talk about arms? Like right. This, yeah. this reveals that there's a lot of yeah. pre, pre-notions about what revolution yeah. is. I mean, and the reality, I, we I don't know. Reductive. Yeah, we don't know. Revolution, I mean, I would prefer it not to be violent. I would prefer revolution to look like, you know, massive waves of general strikes and demonstrations in the streets. And like we talked about with the um, the Carnation Revolution in Portugal, right? Revolutions don't necessarily have to be violent. I would take it one step further, too. And then we, I think we move on to the next question. But like you always have to, and this is like Andy was saying with the enlightenment shit, this is also very deep too, is that your conception of what you believe is also reflect reflexively a reflection of the material and social conditions that you live in. So when Andy cautions, you know, when revolution doesn't necessarily mean picking up, you know, an AK 47 and going off into the mountains, right? Like, we live in very, very different times. So as important as it is to look at past revolutions, like the Carnation Revolution, like May 68, the Spanish Civil War, the Bolsheviks, back to the Paris Commune, or even the French and American revolutions, right? You always need to recognize, too, that we live in different times and we cannot let the nightmare of dead generations weigh over us because we ultimately um, are living in our own times and need to create our own practice, theory, and praxis. Dead ass. Shall, shall we move along? <laughs> Hell yeah. So speaking of radical skepticism, there is the Enlightenment version of that, which is uh, you know somewhat scientific. It's certainly philosophical and critical. But there is a, another type of uh, sort of skeptical thinking that's skeptical of science, skeptical of the Enlightenment, skeptical even of this material reality. And I'm talking about motherfucking magic, motherfucking witches, and the goddamn fucking occult. Jamie, you got a question recently on Twitter, right? Asking if these things, these magic witches, these warlocks, these demons, Ouija boards, could ever be some sort of uh, revolutionary transformational force in society. Well, no, actually, the Ah, questions I've been getting were, (laughs) I mean, it's certainly related to that, but the questions I've been getting were, and multiple people have tweeted this at me because there have been a few articles about um, all the women who've taken up witchcraft since the 2016 election and specifically the uh, efforts on the part of New York witches to hex Brett Kavanaugh, and they want to know if I have anything to do with that. That's a real thing. I I missed that one. Oh, uh, it's a thing. I don't want to call it a real thing because hexes aren't real, but it's definitely (laughs) a thing. Do you know people who did that? (laughs) 
No comment. Oh shit, you're down with that. Week. Maybe, but um, but seriously, um, I am a materialist. Um, I've done enough psychedelic drugs over my lifetime to become a little more agnostic than atheist at this point in my life. I don't think we really can answer questions like what happens after you die, yada, yada. But, um, can we, can we answer the question? What should you do if a black cat crosses your path? Uh, adopt it and give it presents. Oh, that's great. I mean, that's what we did, right, yeah, babe? That's, true. that's what we did when a black cat crossed our shaft. <laughs> <laughs> Story we checks made her out. our little garbage baby. I'm sorry to, to derail you there. Shout guy. out to Frida Gatto. We love you. You're a cat, so you can't understand this podcast. We'll drown you someday in the bathtub. Yeah, don't worry, baby. So anyway, um, uh, and like it, there, there has definitely been a bit of a trend of women particularly women who feel powerless, you know, in the wake of Trump's election, taking up witchcraft as a way to have some semblance of control in the world. Mm. And my read on this is as long as you're not using it as a substitute for real activity out in the world, it's fine. It's harmless. Like if you're doing this so that you can, I don't know, pick yourself up off the floor get inspired to get involved, talk to other people, purify your hate perhaps with other women and then go out and do some real activist shit. That's good. It's as good as any self-help or therapy, right? But if you're doing it as like, all right, I put a hex on Brett Kavanaugh. I'm done now. Obviously that's (laughs) not so good. How do you know it didn't work though? I mean, he might've been appointed, but who knows how long he'll live for. I mean, I guess we'll see. Never say never. (laughs) And I'm not just saying that because my one of my closest friends has an intersectional feminist witch boutique in Bushwick. Everybody, check it out. Shout out to Cult Party. Cult Party. Andy, you have a take on this whole uh, whole thing? It would be nice if karma existed, but it doesn't. Like the all the most powerful people in the world are terrible scumbags, and a lot of really good, brilliant people are completely fucked up and poor and in prison and working every day and it's a very depressing way to put it but i think uh the idea that we can appeal to magic or cast spells or like use intention to just write things or find some sort of balance or justice is just not true and i think it's more a symptom of powerlessness than anything else and you see that on the left with like the idea of hexing um you know bad politicians because there's nothing else you could do to stop them but also you see it on the right with uh, their interest in the occult and uh, ritual and and initiation and um, pseudo-archaeology, pseudo-history, pseudo-science, because they can't justify being on top. It doesn't make any sense Mm. that, uh, you know, this small group of mostly white guys control the world. Uh, And the only way you can justify it is saying that white guys are just the best people. And that's that's ridiculous. Well, so they have to a- a- appeal to some magical natural order that doesn't exist. And that sometimes they express that in magical ways, like right wing occultists. And sometimes they express it in uh, pseudo scientific ways, like Jordan Charles, Peterson. Uh, Charles well, Murray, yeah. I, mean, I don't disagree with anything you're saying, but I think much like more organized forms of religion, uh, it's not a first order thing. It's a second order thing that is mediated by so many things beneath it. And in the hands of the left could be a tool for good. And in the hands of the right could be a tool for bad. I just don't think we'll need magic if we can just 
live the lives we want to live and have <laughs> well, power over creating our reality in a material way. I mean, but I, what if what if that just you I know, largely pe- agree with what you. What if well, after we abolished work and money, just people decide to just to do like you know fucking weird, bizarre, sacrificial rituals that don't harm anybody except the occasional lamb? <laughs> like, don't you think that? spirituality or religion could have a role to play in the leftist movement like we talk about liberation theology right like there are people whose basic i don't know moral regard for humanity is based in a religion or you know more accurately a religion mediated by a positive helpful interpretation of it right i believe in no gods no masters (laughs) that's our that's anarcho andy well I would say, too, that uh, just as a side note, even people on the Marxist left fall into this weird magical thinking stuff. Whenever uh, I read a piece that uses uh, dialectical one or two too many times, oh, yeah. I start to if think it's just like, it's like, it's like, abra, it's like it abracadabra, you know? If, if it's theological, for sure. If, like, <laughs> if there's this idea that just there's socialism is just is the spirit of the times and it's coming and yeah. everyone's going to be... Yeah, that's well, that's, mes- that's religion. That's messianic. That's messianic. Yeah, yeah. it's it, it's um, I'm not afraid actually to um to point or to make some sort of comparison between a religious, whether that be you know Wicca or Catholicism or Islam or Hinduism, uh, a sort of spiritual outlook on the world, uh, certainly one that has some sort of like apocalyptic vision or like this sense of like linear time and being overturned by some sort of I don't know, uh, falling of the veil. I'm not afraid to compare that to what a revolutionary vision would look like in like a secularized way. But I think, uh, again, to go back to the questioning what you believe thing, I think the difference between, you know, our faith, as it were, that humanity could do better for itself is different from, say, a religious uh, faith in that... um, Hopefully, day in and day out, we use, you know, some sort of methods to reanalyze the world and in order to, uh, you know, get better praxis and, uh, you know, think things over in a materialist way. I guess we can agree to disagree on this one because we're probably going to. But as someone who has participated slash been roped into several witch circles in the past, I think at its best, magic is a trick that you play on your own brain, much like any kind of self-help or spirituality or whatever, whatever. And if you're playing a trick on your own brain to psych yourself up, to go out there in the world and change shit, can't get mad at that. And if it turns out that menstruating into the uh, soil does help to uh, bring forth the international proletarian revolution, then Then uh, we're going to owe our witch friends a big apology. Big ups to our witch friends out there. Uh, Next. Shout out to witches. Where do you want to? More questions. Let's crush them. Let's blow through them. All right. So this question comes from Tom J, and he says, Aftermath alum as well. Shout out to the Facebook group Aftermath and all of our friends there. Anyways, I'm a big fan of Tom Nomad's Master's Tools, Insurrectionary Anarchist Text, and generally of Bordica. Do you think that the leftcom tradition can act in coordination with an insurrectionary praxis as well? Well, if witch, uh, witchcraft and Marxism could be combined, I see no reason why crime <laughs> think and uh, armchair memes can't come together to create a great synthesis. I don't know, Andy, what's your take on this? Well, I, I think insurrectionary anarchism uh, kind of gets a bad rap because in lack of like a workers movement, the idea of insurrection is, has been reduced to like a small cadres of people breaking or blowing up things. And that's not an insurrection, you know, 
um, that's what some insurrectionary people like and support, but that doesn't uh, change society as a whole. Um, so uh, I think a lot of a lot of people would support the idea of insurrection if it's something like a revolution. But you might as well just talk about revolution then instead of insurrection, I think. Um, and then in terms of combining it with Bordiga, I mean, you can like, look at what Bordigas have been post-war. I, I think there's some examples of Bordiga being combined with uh, more insurrectionary uh, uh, tendencies, like the communization current, I think, mm. takes a lot after Bordiga. Dave certainly does. Well, the the left com tendency in general is kind of this, um, you know, back and forth relationship between the German and Dutch council communists and, uh, Bordigism in a sense, right? These two different, of course the council communist current, uh, being one that is, um, you know, based on not quite an insurrection, but a, a very, very sort of horizontal grassroots, like workers control the means of production sort of vision of, um, a revolution combined with Bordiga, who is like, more Leninist than Lenin in a sense, right? But I think post-war, the, the Leninist conceptions of these things, even councilism has sort of moved more in the ultra-left, post-left direction. And I think where, where it sort of winds up is, is both in the communization current uh, of Endnotes, TC, uh, Theory Communiste, et cetera, Aufheben, um, and also in Takun, uh, where you there's like a lot of traces of situationism, mm-hmm. um, of uh, like... Uh, ultra left and like not explicitly marxist communisms so i would check out those two places uh for you know combinations of the ultra left tradition and left com and and insurrection yeah and i would say too that um uh you know the question is do you think that it, the left com tra- tradition can act in coordination with an insurrectionary praxis as well i mean this is from tom jay i'd say tom i mean <clears throat> make the synthesis. I mean, uh, work with your friends or work with yourself and, and try to work out these ideas because, you know, I think some of the most important things that happen, you know, in terms of left thinking is when you take ideas that seem to be polar opposites and you synthesize them together. So we're looking very forward uh, to reading your master work that combines crime think and, um, I don't know, socialism or barbarism. Uh, it'll be a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. Just leave Bob Black out of it. Fuck that guy. So the next one here is from a guy named Noah from a new state that just have must have been formed recently called California, which I, I like. I would probably sounds like a there. nice place. The yeah. left coast. <laughs> yes, well, left clearly. is best. <laughs> coast is most. Uh, my question for you, Jamie, is what exactly do you identify as? politically i don't know why they're asking me this question specifically because you have the biggest platform of all of us people ask me this more than anything why i don't know is it not clear where i stand you're on the majority report you're out there every fucking day we're only coming in for a couple hours a week i think it's because you're a woman and people are suspicious of you (laughs) (laughs) she's a witch (laughs) am i uh am i secretly a rad lib or something i don't know what floats in water churches Great gravy. Liberals. <laughs> uh, well, that is a very good, very big question. Um, I think on the majority report, uh, when asked my political tendency in my first week there. That's tough, dude. I made first the mistake. The yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, it's like it's like being asked to declare your major your first day of college, yeah. you know, like. I hesitate to pin myself down to any tendency of the past because I don't know that any of them are all that descriptive of the kind of praxis we want to have in the present to future. 
Um, that said, like I pinned myself down that first week when I said I'm an anarcho-communist because while that's not exactly what I am, I think it's the most descriptive term that regular listeners of the majority report would be able to understand. And you only alienated like 95% of the <laughs> audience. But like basically what I mean by that is um, I am a communist or a socialist. These words are often used interchangeably, but I'm not the kind that believes in centralized power and state bureaucracy, right? So I identify broadly as a leftist, as an anti-capitalist, and I'm not a full-on anarchist, but I have a very healthy mistrust of authoritarian and bureaucratic communism because we've seen it go wildly awry in the past. And I don't think that's just the result of having had like bad people in there. Mm. I think it is the result of the structure itself. So like insofar as these labels are useful, which I think they are as a kind of shorthand, I guess I'm like a non-dogmatic Marxist, anti-capitalist, leftist, anti-authoritarian, anti-state witch. <laughs> but if we don't put you into a box, how can we attack you? I know, right? Like that's another thing I quickly realized, <laughs> which is as soon as I said anarcho-communist, people were out trying to ask me all kinds of gotcha questions. Yeah, there were majority report listeners on Wikipedia looking at what anarcho-communism was and then just attacking yeah. you over it. Yeah, or just like yeah, I don't See, know. See, you, you you fucked up, babe. Like I love you. You do great fucking work on that show. You do great work on this show. You do great work everywhere except around the house. <laughs> oh, that was such a fucking Archie Bunker thing. Uh, but it is true. She's a Fair slob. Enough. She's a slob. I have nothing to say in my defense <laughs> besides shout out to all my slob core sisters out there <laughs> not doing the dishes because that's feminism <laughs> slob core witches yep. um no i was gonna say the only thing i think that you fucked up on and this is a very gentle critique is that if you really wanted to fuck people's brains up you could have used it's more of a british and uh european thing instead of calling yourself an anarcho-communist communist you could have called yourself a libertarian communist uh. that blows americans heads wide open in such a beautiful way such a wonderful provocation well i don't want to have to argue with sam for about half an hour as to whether or not i'm allowed to use the word libertarian right. or else it just because because he just... thinks it only means right-wing libertarian <laughs> yeah, I and i would rather argue about the ideas themselves <laughs> than the words behind the ideas i just imagine an alternate history where like you just said you were libcom instead of ancom and fucking within the first week and sam just ended up firing you like before you even went anywhere he's <laughs> He, he hates libertarians I mean, so much. I he was, does such a great job. I was walking on America. thin ice with anarcho-communists. <laughs> yeah. So, like, who knows what would have happened. We might not be sitting in the studio <laughs> yeah. right now. Well, thank God for small favors. Thank, yep. thank the goddess. Yeah, exactly. Blessings. Oh, and I should say, like, another reason why I'm not, like, an unreconstructed Marxist or whatever is because I think Marx left a lot to be desired on the subjects of race and gender. And there have been a lot of really great thinkers since then that kind of filled in the blanks. So if I were going to say what I actually am using the names of philosophers, it would be too long to say in one sentence. Post Trotskyist anarcho-nihilist. He's trying to convert you. I'll win you over yet. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put words in my mouth. But well, just parenthetically, because this was just a, this was about Jamie, not me. But yeah, I, I agree with you on that last point, too. Um, not Andy, Jamie, um, because, you know, if you look back in Marx's political writings and, you know, there's mostly it's theoretical stuff, but, uh, you know, a lot of his suppositions were wrong. 
He thought that there was going to be a um, fraction of the class, the uh, industrial mass working class, uh, that was going to lead the rest of not just the working people, the toilers, but uh, all of humanity forward. And as we've seen now, that fraction of the class has not increased in number and in percentage of society, but has actually decreased. And in fact, you did not see that class fraction becoming the revolutionary subject. So, you know, Marx himself is writing 150 years ago, Bakunin, Proudhon, uh, Kropotkin, you know, they're all writing, Lenin, Mao, they're all writing in these, in these particular epochs. And uh, yeah, it's definitely contingent upon us to uh, keep ourselves open to the cunning and witchcraft of history. Mm. Exactly. Moving right along. So uh, we had one last question here. Uh, it is quite contentious. And so we'll close out with it perhaps to see how, um, I don't know, how angry we can leave our listeners at the end of this episode 25. This is from a man named Vapor Knave, which is a wonderful name. I'm sure his Christian name. He says here, and Please forgive me, this is going to take a bit to read because he throws in a lot of editorial work here, this vapor knave. He says, <laughs> what's your take on Angela Nagel? Angela Nagel. And Zero Books promoting Argon of Assad and using <laughs> the same defense of him Jordan Peterson fans use. Don't know what that is. Zero Books has been lying that the criticism is out of context. They've laughed about Carl Benjamin starting a rape threat campaign against a female British Parliament member. Is the problem with socialism that white supremacists and chauvinists will end up taking it over like they do everything else? Can rich white people like the owner of Zero Books ever be trusted to include women and minorities in the socialist plan? Why do so many professional leftists like Zero Books, Angela Nagel, and Jimmy Dore flip at the first chance to get incel money? Ooh. Reminds me of Dave Rubin and Cassie J. God damn, Vapor Nave, you are one hot, spicy steaming motherfucker you just oh. really threw it out there there's a lot to unpack yeah that's quite the steaming <laughs> cup of tea there yeah man spilling it all over us jimmy Dore, <laughs> jill Dore, <laughs> jill Dore. Oh, my God. oh that would be a fucked up character i'm not familiar with this stuff i uh read angela nagel's book i liked some of it there's a couple really good chapters that make some good points I think most of it's pretty bad. I think her um, way of framing the SJW left or whatever is just like cribbed from all of this uh, sometimes literally fabricated anti-SJW cottage industry. Um, she's a serious scholar, so she should know that. She claims that it's a materialist argument for the, the creation of the, of the 4chan right, and it's simply not. It's just... I think it rings true to people because they they see the this anti SJW like YouTuber thing and say, well, SJWs are vile and they screech a lot and people don't like them, so that's why the right is empowered. But I think that's a really bad understanding of the history of the right and why it comes about. And it's definitely sort of siding more with uh, the right as like um, this kind of rational reaction than than this uh, like violent holding on to power of you know, the powerful when they when they feel threatened. And part of how they're doing that is labeling anyone who wants a better world, anyone who wants equality, 
as an SJW. And we saw that with the Kavanaugh hearings, where uh, people who just were protesting at the Capitol became this like SJW mob. And so this anti-SJW thing is being used to uh, run cover and to ignore and to justify the injustifiable concentration camps, police killings, and, and putting rapists in the highest court positions. Uh, and anyone who protests against that as an SJW. And I think if, if, if you're going to say that everyone who writes, who wrote a blog post on Tumblr or questions the logic of gender or, uh, or does so using a, a, a non-traditional pronoun is an SJW, uh, then fuck you. And if you're going to, certainly if you're going to use alt-right 4chan rhetoric and, and lies, as Angela Nagel does in her book, to make that argument, then fuck you. Well, um, I'm going to comment more broadly because I actually haven't read the book. Um, as I understand it, like she's sort of to some degree blaming the sort of rad lib Tumblr left for the online reactionary right. Can right? I stop you for a second? Yeah. There's a, you've done this a couple times. Can you explain for people who don't uh, know what rad lib means? Oh, I thought you were going to tell me that I shouldn't comment on something I hadn't read. No, 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 not at all. No, I was going to say, because you said that last episode, too. I don't think people know what oh, rad lib means. Like radical liberals, right? Like they take, they have no class politics, so they take identity politics to the extreme. Right. Okay. Right. Thanks. Um, and she's sort of blaming them for feeding this like online alt-right Pepe phenomenon, right? Am I correct in my assessment? Because I haven't read the book. Somebody there, help me out. There's... What I caught of of a material analysis in the book was that um, there, her main issue is that this all happens after the historical defeat of uh, labor, right? So it's a reflection this Tumblr Tumblr politics and this uh, SJW shit, and um, you know what you're referring to with this rad lib uh, posturing sort of stuff. It's a reflection of. The fact that not only are we not organized and not only don't we have power, but we don't even have the language anymore to express what the class struggle means, what actual, you know, uh, I don't know, liberation or liberatory mass movement can even look like anymore. So it falls back on these things because it's an expression of our historical powerlessness. Beyond that, like Andy said, I'm not sure there's much, much more than a sort of critical reading of like blogs and tumblr posts and 4chan and stuff over the course of some years trying to get at the root of why the alt-right arises in the way that it does at this particular point in time and in reaction to what other forces exist in cyberspace okay (laughs) as they said in the 90s cyberspace i mean i can comment more broadly on people who criticize sort of the sjw left and think that it's like weakening the leftist movement or whatever um because i think a lot of the time, these people would prefer only to do battle with liberals and dum-dums and fail to really uh, engage with currents of what we might call identity politics on the actual anti-capitalist left. Is that fair to say? And like, <clears throat> insofar as I am on the left IRL, I think if you're only... And I know that she's choosing to focus on internet culture, which I think makes her a little less relevant than she could be if she were focusing like on stuff on the ground. Because I think if your only interaction with the left or with DSA or whatever is the stuff that happens on Twitter 
you're not going to get an accurate perspective on what's really going on. Well, she right? also she's also one of these like the SJWs have taken over college campuses, people and like saying they're shutting down the speeches of feminists and Jordan Peterson and stuff like that, like way more sympathetic to like well, r- like a uh, well, rad fans and. Do college campuses really count as the real left IRL either? Like, these are children. That's what her, like, people on the ground thing is. is <sighs> yeah. It's it's just, that's not that's not a very good sample either. Exactly. Would you say? Because, like, okay, I'm in DSA. I go to a ton of fucking meetings. I plan a ton of fucking meetings. I interface with all the people from all of the different working groups. And this kind of, like, SJW, like, quote-unquote identity bullying or whatever these folks are warning against like i just don't see it happening in real life it's not a thing it's not a factor like the vast majority of people in dsa understand that if we want a real revitalized working class movement we're gonna have to do everything and like i don't even want to say both race and class and gender right because you can't really disaggregate these things from one another at this point in time. And the fact is, a lot of people's primary experience of oppression is initially along some line of identity, either because, you know, that's just how they experience life in the world as a gendered person or a racialized person, or because, like, that is how we are initially taught to think about things. So it makes sense that that would be a person's primary experience and, like, could could in fact function as a way in like i know that i thought of myself as i was a feminist before i was a socialist feminist right i was a liberal feminist i didn't think of myself as a liberal feminist i just thought of myself as a feminist and then you know once i tried to survive on my own in the world very quickly became a socialist because i started to understand more uh class dimensions of what's going on so like if this is your main thing Right. If this, you know, trying to protect the left from SJWs, which are mostly kind of imaginary and overblown, to be honest, I'm not saying they don't exist. Right. We all know that people like this exist and they take things too far and they get kind of hysterical and counterproductive. But like if that's your bailiwick, if that's your main issue, I don't trust you. I'm sorry. And I don't think that you're helping. So. To work backwards on this question, because there's a lot here, uh, why do so many professional leftists flip at the first chance to get incel money? That's funny, actually, the idea of incel money. Um, hopefully we abolish incel money before uh, all the rest of the money. It's called Bitcoin. hi <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Andy wins for best joke of the episode. Uh, you win that one, buddy. Take it to the bank with the rest of your incel money. No, no, Andy has a girlfriend. Um, so, like, I, I think that like Jimmy Dore, I can't, I can't, I can't stand Jimmy Dore. I mean, S T A N. Like, he's a fucking douchebag. He has no politics. He's a fucking jerk off. Um, but Angela Nagel, and I'm assuming this is a Douglas Lane reference here when he says zero books ascribing this bad faith that they're chasing, uh, like, in, like all right money. I'm, I want to let that one go because I don't know what's in their hearts. And I think that it's always very dangerous to like ascribe those sorts of things to other people on the, you know, supposedly on the left. So we'll leave that one be this next one here. I think, um, with all due respect to vapor knave, um, 
is a, is a little problematic here. Uh, can rich white people like the owner of Zero Books ever be trusted to include women and minorities in the socialist plan? There's two issues with that. I'm pretty sure that Douglas Lane is white, but I'm also pretty sure that he's not rich. I don't think that Zero Books is like Simon & Schuster. They're a small imprint. I'm not saying that like everything they do is great. I'm not saying that Kill All Normies is the best book ever, right? But, um, you know, I don't think it's fair to ascribe to Douglas Lane, like, some sort of power to exclude women and minorities from the socialist plan, which is the other part of my, you know, rejoinder to this, which is that the socialist plan, as, as you call it, does not get cooked up in the brains of Angela Nagel. It doesn't get cooked up in the brains of Douglas Lane or Karl Marx or Bakunin or whatever. It is a real expression of a mass movement that will, you know, abolish the present state of things. So you got to watch, I think, watch it with that, that language a little bit because it, uh, I think it's a little straw manning. And then this question is the po- problem with socialism that white supremacists and sh- chauvinists will end up taking it over like they do everything else. I mean, I think historically you have you haven't seen that that is the problem that white supremacists and chauvinists have taken over socialism. I think maybe chauvinism to the extent that you know people have claimed that Stalin was a great Russia chauvinist. You know, when the Soviet uh, Union became an empire, yeah, they've or whatever, also but... claimed that Stalin was like a queer trans POC. Yeah, right? I mean, as as brown as the Georgian earth, you know, as they say. I'm I'm pretty sure that the problem with socialism is not that is not that. Um, there is a, a white supremacist uh, Marxist wing, you know, just waiting, you know, behind the eaves to come and uh, subvert the revolution. But in terms of oh, and I must say too, in terms of this Carl Benjamin guy, I'm do not know what that refers to with the rape threat campaign. If that happened, that's horrific. And I don't defend any of that sort of stuff, but I've read kill all normies. And, uh, I've also watched the, uh, Sargon of Akkad, uh, Angela Nagel debate that happened, uh, on YouTube. I'm assuming it happened on YouTube grounds. That's uh, where he lives. He lives on YouTube. Yes. Um, it was, um, I am, I'm not defending everything that, Angela Nagel wrote in her book or has said on Twitter or elsewhere, I've met her once. I don't know her very well. And um, I'm going to try to just be very sort of neutral in this entire thing. Some of the takes that people brought out of that exchange between Sargon and, and Angela uh, were taken out of context. At one point in time, she says that, well, in the past, the socialist movement and the labor movement was very socially conservative. People meant that to say, people wanted her to be saying that she wants it to return to that, to be that way. When in the context of the conversation at that point in time, what she was saying is that having an identitarian um, collective analysis of the world is not the only way that people can have a group identity politics or have a collective form of mass struggle. What she was trying to, what she was saying was that if you look at the socialist movement, it was based around work, the working class and their interests in the past. And that, um, you know, Sargon is arguing essentially that you can't even have a fully class-based socialism because class is just an identity and a collectivity like everything else. When Nagel, I think, rightly points out that class is a social relationship, it's not merely an identity category. So I want to push back a little bit on what some of the folks were saying um, on Twitter about that. Correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but uh, that's what I got from it. I think that ultimately... What this uh, Angela Nagel thing uh, comes down to is that there is a segment that Jamie pointed to IRL, and there is a very 
uh, loud minority online that um, wants to be, let's say, vulgar workerists, or let's just say class reductionists, or they want to, in a sense, instead of looking forward into the future, and as another questioner put, re-examining or questioning their beliefs, they want to return to a time before these thorny issues of identity based around the experience of race or the experience of class were something that people had to talk about. But now in this 21st century, uh, given the heroic struggles of people of color and anti-colonial struggles and certainly the struggle of women in the U.S. and around the world, it's not necessary to put those people and those struggles back into a box somewhere and go back to 1950s or 1930s or 1890s conceptions of what socialism means. I think if we are smart, and I think that there's a lot of smart people on the left, and I think that... Certainly everyone listening to our show right now. Indeed. And I think if we are savvy, and I think if we are honest with the world and with ourselves, we realize that while class is ultimately this universal experience and universalizing um, process that can bring us from uh, immiseration and uh, alienation and exploitation and war and misery and climate catastrophe, that it can be the vehicle through its abolition, creates the abolition of all these horrific things that um, race and class are not going to be put away again. And so I understand the tendency of folks like Nagel and other vulgar workerists out there uh, to want to go back to a purer time when we just had labor unions and we could just talk about nationalizing industries and we didn't have to deal with all these thorny identity issues. But unfortunately for them, that's not the world we live in anymore. So what we should be doing instead of trying to ally ourselves or not even ally, but kind of find common ground with folks on the alt-right or the classical liberal right, whatever you want to call them, is we should be synthesizing these things because there are enough tools in our arsenal, right? Going back, you know, to Enlightenment thought, going back to Marx and certainly through the 20th century and today, for us to be able to create a synthetic analysis of the world and critique of the world that can have class as a central component to it, but also take account for race and take account for gender, that is able to critique these identity politics, SJW, you know, fucking Radlib warriors, right? On the terms they should be attacked on, which is that they are not on the left, that they are liberals, right? And instead of hand-wringing all the time and saying, oh, you know, like, if we just got rid of identity politics, we could somehow have some sort of, you know, unity within the, you know, Marxist left, understand that we're going to work this process out together over the course of probably decades, right? And you can't put those forces back into the box. So ultimately, I think folks who are in that category right there, you're out there, your voice is being heard, but I think that history has moved past you. And perhaps you've, because of all this impulse stuff, you've bent the stick too far in the other direction. And maybe, you know, well, uh, that'll get straightened out a little bit and we can move forward uh, with the history and theory that we know is good and combine it with the th new things that we need to learn today to move forward is that fair i don't know i think that's extremely fair i'm trying to be really really fair because vapor nave is uh my my new favorite listener so i just want to be fair to i you. think that gritty would approve <laughs> gritty approved gritty is all about the synthesis oh yeah <laughs>